seated and open up to Jonah chapter 4. Jonah chapter 4, that's the text that will be in this morning, and we are finishing this great and awesome book. It's been three-week series, and uh, I hate to, to leave Jonah. He's been so instructive for us, but this will be the last week of this short series, and what a, an incredible series it's been as it's taught us so much about God and so much about ourselves. But once again, Jonah chapter 4, and I want to start by just jumping right in and reading from Jonah chapter 4. We're going to read the whole chapter, and then we'll begin to move into our exposition and our learning of what God wants to teach us here. So let's start in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 4. Follow along as I read. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what became, what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint, and he asked that he might die, and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. That's a chapter you don't hear all the time because it almost boggles our minds as to what is in it. But let me tell you what the main point of this chapter is so you can get it right up front. 
Here in this chapter, God's heart is made crystal clear. That's the point of this chapter, explaining the heart of God. That's the point. That's why this last chapter of Jonah was written. It was to make clear God's heart. This chapter and this whole book and all of Scripture, really, is telling us about the character of God. This book, as we've said, is not mainly about Jonah. This book is about God. That's the point of this book. God is disclosing to his people uh, what he is, about what he is like. And he's doing it through this story that Jonah just gets to be a part of. But mainly, this book is about God and his character. He is teaching his people who he is and what he is like. That's really the point of all of Scripture. But really, this book is climaxing in this chapter. It's climaxing. It's telling us this final word about God, this theology proper, which is the study of God the Father. This is the the final and the climactic chapter here, which is telling us what the book has been trying to tell us the entire time about who God is. And it's no more, it's not any more implicit in that sense. It's explicit. It's telling us what God is like, what we are to learn about who he is, that we may know him, we may be like him. Again, this book, God has the first word of the entire book, and he's got the last word of the entire book. And everywhere in between is about him. And so he's telling us now about his gracious heart. And that's why I've entitled this message, God's Gracious Heart. Jonah 4 is about the heart of God. It's about who he is. If you remember, this entire series is entitled The Sovereign Grace of God and Jonah, or Jonah and the Sovereign Grace of God. Because in this book, God is teaching us about his sovereign grace. That, that he is sovereign over all creation. He's the creator, the owner, the ruler, the judge. Uh, he sets the standard and he made everything. And at the same time, God is gracious and he is merciful and he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he directs that grace and that mercy to whomever and whenever he sees fit. He's in charge. And he decides what goes. And so this book kind of builds to this great sovereign grace theme. This book builds to it. Chapter one, we see this grace of God in the pursuit of people. He pursues this, this messenger, Jonah, to pursue this sinful people in Nineveh. He saves these sailors along the way. God didn't need to do any of that. He initiated this gracious pursuit. And then we see in the third chapter, we see it experienced, the sovereign grace of God experienced among the lives of people. Ninevites are saved, right? The pursuit, he initiates it. Then we see it experienced, he saves them. And then in this final chapter now, his sovereign grace is explained. The pursuit, the experience, and the explanation. And it just builds to teach us about what God is like. And so we see who God is, we see his work in the lives of people, and we are to know him better and to submit to him. And so we see he's the ruler over creation. He's in charge of the wind and the waves, and we're going to see he's in charge of the worms and the plants, right? And he's in charge of, of all of this. And he sets this command on this man of Jonah. And he commands him to do what he says. And so he's even in charge of the people that he created. And yet we see his grace. 
he sends a servant with a message for salvation to sinners. This is the God we serve. He is sovereign and he is gracious. And he is aiming to show that to us. And so what we must learn this morning as we go through this book, first of all, this is what God has been to you in Christ. He has displayed his sovereign grace by saving you. You are walking like a dead person, a zombie, just into the abyss of death and hell. And him by, he, by his own sovereign grace, regenerated your heart, brought the gospel message to your eyes, to your ears, to your heart, saved you, called you into eternal life and fellowship with him because he's gracious and because he's sovereign. And we must understand that also this is who he is and our hearts must match his heart. Too often we are not like God in this area. Uh, we will never be fully sovereign, but we should be gracious. We should match his compassionate heart, his loving heart, his merciful heart. And so we are to be like him. You notice in this chapter, Jonah is in no way like God, right? His heart doesn't match his. And we're to understand the balance of, of, of who God is. So often we do put the emphasis, rightly so, on his righteousness, on obedience, uh, that we should follow his ways. We're convicted of sin and we should do our best to follow his word. But we can't forget that God is merciful. We can't forget his grace. We can't forget his kindness. Not so that we can take advantage of it. Romans 2 tells us that his mercy and his grace and his kindness leads us to what? Repentance, because we realize this great grace that he has. And so we realize if we turn from our sin, he'll forgive us. And so this is what we're learning here. This is who God is. This is what he's been to us. Our heart should match his. And we must not forget this aspect of God's great character. So as we get to know God's heart, we're going to just see two points as we walk through this. Number one, Jonah's heart revealed, verses one through five. And number two, God's heart explained in verses six through 11. Jonah's heart revealed and God's heart explained. Uh, let's begin by seeing the heart of Jonah. It, as we look at this, we see Jonah's heart revealed in verses one through five. It reads this, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Let's stop right there. Now, in some ways, you have to understand Jonah is serving as a foil in this whole book. A foil is one that makes uh, the, the other person who's in some way contrasted with this person, it, it makes that person's attributes, character obvious. God is showing who he is by having this foil of Jonah to show the exact opposite of who God is. And it makes you see God's characteristics all the more, right? And so we can see God more clearly by seeing Jonah in contrast. And so really what's incredible about this book is that the entire book is narrative. That's unlike any major or minor prophet, right? This is really the only, the only prophet uh, the prophetic book, that's majority is it, uh, of it is narrative. And, and so we only see really 
a small prophecy in this book, which is the five Hebrew words or the eight English words of Jonah's prophecy, right? Where he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So it's a narrative. We are learning what we are learning through a story, through a story, which sometimes can make it hard to understand what are we supposed to learn here? And remember, when we study Old Testament books, we're always supposed to ask What is this teaching us about God? What is this teaching us about man? What is this teaching us about believers? What is this teaching us about the world? What is this teaching us about the lost? And we can begin to understand what God is teaching here. So this book has been teaching us about God through narrative. Like I said, we've gotten a lot through this inference, through just what we're seeing. But as we get to chapter four, we begin to learn what we're learning explicitly through this great teaching. And if I were the author of this book, I don't know about you, but I would have ended this thing after chapter three, right? Let's end this after chapter three. Jonas, the greatest prophet that's ever lived. Nineveh repented, greatest revival in history, and we're done, right? But what's great about scripture is that it's honest. It doesn't just show us uh, what it is, uh, uh, what's good about the lives of people and about history. It shows us an honest picture, an honest look. And what the hope is, is that at the end of this, Jonah has actually repented because he's the author of this book. He writes this and he doesn't cover it up. He's real honest uh, about what happened with him at the end of this. And so what we see here is that his heart didn't match God's. Let's look at Jonah's heart here. And this is gonna help make God's heart more clear when we get to it. But let's go through this verse one. It starts with, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. I mean, that's crazy. That, that, do you know what just happened at the end of chapter three? The greatest revival in history. Never was anything like it before. We have never seen anything like it since. A man with a message and the king and everybody down repents of their sin and turns to faith in God. That's incredible. And then you see the prophet of the Lord respond as he does here. Verse one, you would expect it to start with anything other than but, right? God did not do the the damage he said he was going to do at the end of chapter three, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly. I mean, that's crazy. It would be like if I preached on a Sunday morning and the whole town came in and everybody repented and trusted in Christ and was saved and I went out mad about it. Now, what is going on here? Well, you already know the story. I won't rehash all of it as to the history of all this, but here's some reasons. Jonah's ego is hurt. He, He preached destruction to all these people and it didn't happen. He might be in risk, at risk of being a false prophet. Remember, the prophets in the Old Testament had to be true how, much, how often? 100% of the time, or else you're a false prophet. You, you look at the idea of what was going on with Assyria and Israel. Assyria was their enemy, and they had done some pretty wicked things to Israel. You think about the future. Hosea and Amos would prophesy what would happen in the future between Assyria and Israel. And that is that Assyria would destroy Israel. So in just a short while in the future, Israel would suffer under the hands of Assyria. And Jonah doesn't want anything to do with that. 
He doesn't want to facilitate that. Jonah's bitter. He's also proud and he's blind and he's short-sighted. Think about this. In 2 Kings chapter 14, when we saw Jonah's ministry under Jeroboam, right? Israel was disobedient and God blessed Israel and by extending the borders further than even maybe the times of David and Solomon. And so what Jonah prophesied during his, his prophetic ministry was the mercy and the grace of God, even in light of his people's own disobedience. And so here you think about this and God's shown him mercy by not destroying him when he rebelled by sending the fish and saving him. And so Jonah has lost sight of the mercy that God has shown his people and the mercy that God has shown him. I mean, he's totally lost sight of all of it. He was, a, he was, he, people had favor. Uh, Jonah had favor in the eyes of people because he preached a great message when he was in Israel. Hey, look, I know you've all been disobedient to Yahweh, but he's going to bless you by extending your borders because he's merciful and gracious. That was his message. That was pretty easy to do, huh? Well, here we see Jonah's forgot. And, and really Jonah's heart symbolizes Israel at the time. The ones who do not want to submit to Yahweh. And so God is what we know here. It says in verse two is about to tell us, why was Jonah angry? By the way, verse one uh, in the Hebrew, I mean, he's hot. This is not just like at this point that he's just kind of uh, pouting. He's hot at this point, right? He's hot, burning with anger. That's how audacious and egregious his rebellion is towards God at this point. He's hot with anger. And what does he say for the reason? We're going to see it in verse two. He knows and prays to the Lord and tells God this is why he fled in chapter one. This is why he left. This is why he ran away from God. This is why he fled to Tarshish, because he knew something about God's character. And that's the highlight of this chapter. What did he know? That God was gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and that he relents from disaster on sinners when they repent and believe. He, he knew this about God. This is who you are. This is who you are. And I know that this message is going to come to these people, that they're going to repent and you're going to forgive them. That's why I didn't want to come. Right? How did he know about God? Well, he knew about God from the scriptures. He knew about God from experience. He knew about God from what he, how he treated his own people. And so he knew this. Jonah had good theology. But Jonah defied and disobeyed God's clear commands in chapter one because of this, of this character of God. So when we see Jonah go and actually preach the message, what we know is he's obeying outwardly, but his heart is far from God, right? Ephesians 6, 6 tells us that we're to do the father's will from the heart, from the heart. And he's back to his old self here, isn't he? This is who he was in chapter one. He's back to his old self. And Jonah's being honest here, but here's what he's doing in verse two. He's rebuking God. He thinks that how he feels is warranting him getting his way. This is why I fled to Tarshish, as though it's a justification for it. As though he's justifying 
to God why he ran, and that makes it okay, right? This is why I fled, as though his sinful emotionalness reacting to his sinful desires warrants his sinful ways being right. And isn't that what we're seeing in our culture today? My feelings about what I want and my emotionalness about it warrants the fact that I should be able to get my way in any of this, right? We talk about anything that's going on in our culture, right? Transgender, homosexuality, all of those things. If I'm super emotional about it, it's almost a, a way of me justifying that I should be able to get it. And the point is, is that no, no matter how emotional you get about what you want, God's ways are always right. And we are to submit to his ways regardless, right? Second Timothy chapter three says, in the last days, people will reject authority. And so that's really, I think, the problem at this point in our culture is that we are rejecting the authority of God's word. It no longer has authority. Well, it's just a book. I'm gonna pick and choose what I wanna learn and see from it, obey from it, and I'll just decide. I'm the authority, right? And I'm gonna get real emotional about it so that I can get my way. Well, that's in a sense what Jonah's doing. God is no longer the authority. Now, he is saved. He's a true believer in Yahweh. He's a true prophet, but he is deciding what he wants, what God should be like, and because he's emotional about it, he thinks that it should justify, in a sense, what he wants. And so he's rejecting the authority of God's word. And literally, he's opposing God's ways. Jonah knew who God was. He had good theology, but he wished that God was different. He wished that God was different because his sin wanted it, uh, wanted God to be different. In his sin, he wanted God to be different. And this really fits what is the Bible terms to be idolatry. When we wish that God would be different than he is, because it would better fit us in our lives, right? That's making a God out of who? Ourselves. And so Jonah really here is, he's deep in this. This is idolatry to the highest degree. God, I wish you were different. You should be different. The fact that I'm emotional about it justifies what I want. And I mean, this is, this is idolatry. And God here is showing his sovereign grace even to Jonah, and Jonah doesn't even realize it. God at this point should call the lightning bolt to come and take Jonah's life immediately. And God is almost reasoning with Jonah here. But this is what the Bible says about God and Jonah doesn't like it. Look at, let me just share some verses with you. Joel 2, 13, it says, return to the Lord your God for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Nehemiah 17, uh, 9, 17 says, they refused to obey, were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious, merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them. 
2 Peter 3, 9 says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Psalm 111 says, the Lord is gracious and merciful. Psalm 112, he is gracious, merciful, and righteous. 1 Timothy 2, 4, this is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so Jonah knows this truth about God. He is merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He doesn't like it, and he's justifying his feelings about it. He doesn't want Nineveh to be saved. But I also want to show you this, that Jonah's also misrepresenting God. Because God is also righteous. He's also the judge. And he also holds the standard for righteousness. And so Nineveh was in sin. They, they were against God. They were guilty before him, which is why he sent his message to them so that they would repent. So, so here he, Jonah is misrepresenting God because he's forgotten the other side. God, you are righteous. You are just. You're the owner, the ruler, the creator of all things. And Nineveh is guilty before you, which is why you sent your message so they would turn and repent. And then you showed your grace and your mercy to forgive them. Jo Jonah's just twisting this whole thing because he's not getting what he wants. And he's just fickle. I mean, he was pretty happy when the fish saved him, right? He was pretty happy when things, when God showed his grace to him but he's not happy here. We're gonna move on to verse three, but let me just tell you, you know what Jonah's like here? Jonah is the prodigal son and the older brother. He's the one who runs to get his way, and he's the one who's not happy about the father's mercy and grace. But either way, he doesn't match the father's heart. He's nothing like the father. He's nothing like the father. As James 1.8 says, this, he's a double-minded man. And what's interesting is he's praying here. He's praying to God. And he's way out of balance. I mean, he's missing all the other essential elements of prayer. Worship, submission, supplication, thanksgiving, praise. He, he's missing all of those. He's only saying one thing in his time of prayer. God, I wish I got my way right? One commentator says that he gave his best prayer in the worst place while he was falling in the water and he was in the belly of the fish and he gave his worst prayer in, in, a, in the best place. He's got great success here. I mean, this is a dream of any prophet for everybody to repent and to believe. And he now is sulking. When he was in a place of discipline by the Lord, he was in a place of humility and praying to God with his whole heart. So Jonah's heart is revealed here. It's revealed. Verse three, it tells us how he responds. What's the fruit of his angry heart? What's the fruit of it? He's dramatic. He's manipulative. And he's fatalistic. Take my life, Lord. Right? Take my life. I mean, this is just pride up and down. Selfishness, he wants what he wants. He's not like God. And because of that, he just wants his life to be gone. 
Jonah thinks that life is about him and getting what he wants. And you would think that a prophet of the Lord would realize that that's not what life is about. I tell my kids all the time, and I think I was telling somebody recently, one thing I try to tell them and I try to tell myself, this life is not about you. It's about God and it's about others, right? That's what this life is about. And so Jonah here, the prophet of the Lord, you would think that he would realize that and he doesn't. So he tells God to take his life. It's better for him to die than to live. And here's what the Lord says. Look at verse four. The Lord asks the question that Jonah should be concerned with. He says, do you do well to be angry? And here's what he's saying. I know you're emotional. I know you didn't get what you want. I know you think you're right and you're just in the way that you feel. But have you stopped to ask the question whether or not what you feel is actually right? I mean, you think you're right. But listen, should you be angry about this? Should you be angry? If Jonah would realize that his response is sin, regardless of how he feels, then he could repent and experience God's grace again. But God is pushing him to ask the right question. Why don't you ask your question this, uh, uh, this way, Jonah? Ask yourself if it's right for you to be angry about this. That's what you're missing. And doesn't that happen to us all the time? We're so emotional, we're so upset about not getting what we want and in our sin especially, that we never stop to ask, is this exactly right? should I desire this? Should I be upset about this? Maybe someone rebukes you because of your sin and you're all fired up about that rebuke. But do you stop to ask, were they right? Is that true? Do I need to repent? Right? Maybe that would be a good question to ask. And then you can experience God's grace and his forgiveness. So what happens? How does Jonah respond? Well, here he doesn't respond. He just ignores God's question. At least this is what we see in verse five. Jonah doesn't answer. Jonah says, you should ask yourself, should you be angry right now, Jonah? And Jonah doesn't even ask, answer the question. And so what we see here is in verse five, here's what jo how Jonah responds, the last kind of response here, is Jonah goes out from the city and he sits to the east of the city. And I put a map up again. I, I used a different map than last week. But you can see there where Jonah was, where he was, where Tarshish was, where Nineveh was, and how he got on the boat and kind of made his way back to that shore, that kind of top right uh, arrow there out of, out of those arrows. The top right there, he, he makes his way back to that shore, gets spit out, and goes straight to Nineveh at that point. And the east side of that city would be on the other side. So it's kind of facing the mountains there, facing uh, really uh, the opposite direction of the sea. And so I just show you that to, to look at kind of the, the picture of what Jonah was experiencing. He's probably sitting there looking at the mountains and just sulking in the fact that he didn't get his way. You can take that off. But here's what's happening here. Jonah is wondering what's gonna happen to this city whether or not this city is going to experience a permanent revival, God's blessing in every way. I mean, they repented. God relented from his anger. 
And so he, Jonah's wondering, is God gonna continue to bless these people? Is this gonna be something permanent for them? Or perhaps maybe I'll still get my way and God will still destroy them. He's still kind of holding on to that, right? So he goes out to sulk. Now I will say, side note, this repentance will be short-lived because one generation later, these Assyrians will, will do harm to Israel. And about a century later, um, God will punish them for, for that. But what we understand is really this, this repentance is short-lived, but for this particular generation, they experience God's grace. They experience salvation, which, I mean, we can learn a lesson here. We can learn a lesson about the, the necessity to pass down our faith to the next generation, right? Because this lasts one generation and it's, it's reminded me that really every revival in history has pretty much last only one generation. And so you have to understand for your kids, your faith is not their faith. Their faith is not your faith. You have to work hard to help them come to faith on their own and to repent of their sins and to see their need for salvation in the gospel and to trust in Christ themselves. Um, because just because you are eager to follow the Lord doesn't necessarily mean that they will be unless you teach them why they need to be. And so this is a, a one generation revival, but it's still a revival. Now listen, Jonah could have become the most important man in the city. Think about this. He, he's the one who turned them from their sin. He could have stayed, he could have invested, <laughs> he could have discipled. He, he would have had all their loyalty because he led them to life, to eternal life, and he could have been there to help them grow and they would have been loyal to him forever. There's no reason to act like this. And yet Jonah's going out and sulking. Now, one thing that we do realize is this Revival for Nineveh really has no reflection upon him. I mean, he's got no reason to act like this, right? It's not hurting him. In some way, Jonah feels their repentance, their blessing, their forgiveness reflects on him. And that's another exposure of his pride, right? I mean, we, we can relate to that. Do you feel at times the blessing of others feels like an insult to you? that the blessing of other people feels like an insult to you, it has nothing to do with you. But God's blessing on their lives feels insulting to you. What is that? That's pride. It's, this is selfishness to the core. And so what we see in this picture is Jonah's pride, his rebellion, his rebellion. And this is a prophet of the Lord. This warns us, be careful if you think you stand, lest you what? Fall. I wanna just give you these points of, of pride that he has here. They're not gonna be up on the screen, but I just, as you look at these verses one through five, we can, read, we, we can understand some things about God. One, pride redefines God. Secondly, pride rebukes God. You might say, well, I never rebuke God. But when you say your ways are better than his, you do. God, uh, pride refuses God. So God asks this question to Jonah. Jonah just even refuses to answer, goes out on his own. And pride is irreverent towards God. The way in which he disrespects God by the way he talks shows that his reverence level for God is down. 
And so Jonah's heart is just revealed here. But that serves as a foil to show what God's heart is like. And so let's move to God's heart as it's explained in verses six through 11. Here's what the Lord does. He, he's gonna do a, uh, he, he's gonna give here a, um, an illustration to show God's, to show Jonah's heart, to show his own. He's gonna, he's gonna expose it with a plant and a worm. It says this in verse six. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. You're so mad that these Ninevites repented, but oh, you're uncomfortable, Jonah. Here, let me make you comfortable by giving you this plant to, to, to be over your head so the sun doesn't burn your, uh, maybe your bald scalp at this point, right? It is said that Jonah's probably an older man at this time, which we don't normally think of Jonah in that way. We think of him as a young and dumb guy here. But so here we begin to see again God's sovereignty because God prepared or appointed what here in verse six? A plant. We've been told this over and over in this book. God appointed a what? A storm. God appointed a whale or a fish. God here appoints a plant and soon God will appoint a worm. This book is teaching you that God is sovereign. He's the creator, the owner, the ruler, the judge. He has a standard that Nineveh is not meeting and he's also the creator and owner of everything. He's righteous and he's the creator and owner. This is a sovereign God. And so this is what we see. This is probably what's called a rickinous plant. It's got these broad leaves. It grows fast in the heat. But this is aiming to show you that this is a miracle produced by God, just like the storm was, just like the fish was. God is doing this to teach Jonah and us something. He appoints this plant to come up over Jonah that it might shade him to save him from his discomfort, which shows you the fickleness of Jonah's heart. Jonah's uncomfortable about being in the heat, but he couldn't care less about Nineveh, lost people who need salvation and God's dishonor and God's character. And so this is just a fickle man. This is a fickle man. And what we see here is he puts this leaf over Jonah's head, this plant in verse six at the end, Jonah is exceedingly what? Glad because of the plant. Go back to chapter four, verse one. But the salvation of the Ninevites displeased Jonah exceedingly. Go back to verse six. Jonah's exceedingly glad about the plant. What a selfish man. What a selfish man. You're happy because you got plant and shade and you're upset because God saved sinners. What, what a selfish man. And so this is a fickle hearted man. Verse seven, we see when God, uh, when dawn came up the next day, God then appointed what? Sovereignty here again, appointed a, a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. God is teaching Jonah here something. What happens now, this worm attacks this plant. That's another miracle of the sovereign God. 
He makes the, the sun rise as well. The sun rises and God here now, and I didn't mention this one, appoints a scorching east, what? Wind. This is a silent breeze. This is a desert breeze. It's not a breeze that makes you feel good. This is a breeze that brings the heat and the sand in your face, right? So now the plant's gone. The, the worm is eating it. Jonah's sitting there. He's all happy because he's got shade and now God takes it all away and brings this wind, this wind, a Sirocco wind from the Arabian desert. And Jonah's now upset again. He's faint, verse eight. Poor guy. And he asked that he might die, said it's better for me to die than to live. Here he goes. Here he goes again. This is a, an, an illustration to show Jonah his selfish, self-centered ways. And God is making this very clear to him. But God said to Jonah, now look at verse nine. Here we go. This is the question that God asked before. And this is the climax, the entire point of the book. God said to Jonah, have you considered this, Jonah? You're all upset. Have you considered this? Is it right for you to be angry? Is it right for you to be angry about this? Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And look at what Jonah says. Yes, I do well. Angry enough to die. Now here's where the Lord's gonna teach him. He says in verse 10, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Jonah, you're not sovereign. You didn't create anything. You don't own anything. You don't rule anything. You're not the sustainer of anything. You're not the judge of anything. I am the sovereign Lord. And so these aren't yours to decide and really you care mo uh, so much about these things, this plant, this worm, your comfort. Think of the God, the sovereign God of the universe who created all of these people, who is the owner of these people, who is the ruler of these people, who is the judge of these people. And think of the heart of this sovereign God and look at what God says about his own heart. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, speaking of its size, in which there are more than 120,000 people. Now, people who do not know their right hand from their left. Now, at that point, that's to be taken literally, I think. Those are 120,000 children. They literally don't know right from left, right? And so if that's the case, it puts this city at about 600, 700,000 people. This is a large city. And all of these people, including all of these children who don't know God, should not God care about that and have mercy upon them and show them grace because he can and because of who he is. He's compassionate, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love. And I think this phrase at the end might seem off to you, but I think God's just saying, I care about the animals too, right? 
He's the creator of all of this. And at the end here, God tells us about who he is. God tells us why he saves. God tells us about his sovereignty, and yet God tells us about his grace and his mercy, his compassion, his kindness, his relenting from disaster. God is teaching us here that he is in charge of everyone and that he desires for people to live. And so we learn about God here. Now we don't learn how Jonah responds, but as I said in the beginning, I'm hopeful that Jonah responds well because Jonah wrote the book and so he includes this, at least he's being honest about his sinfulness, right? And so you would hope that Jonah had the right response. As we close, what do we learn? Well, we learn a lot about theology proper here, that God is sovereign, that he's gracious, that, that he chooses to save. We've put a lot of emphasis on God's uh, righteousness, his expectation of obedience, that, that he's the judge, that he's perfectly holy, and that he requires us to follow his word, but we must not forget that it is equally true that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is what God has done for you in Christ and God saves sinners. But we also learn here about man's heart, that it's fickle. We learn that oftentimes we desire what we want and we want God to be a certain way and he's not. And you can test yourself in this. What makes you angry with God? What makes you want to give up? What makes you upset with God? What are you embittered about? Who is there around you that is lost and needs salvation? And rather than desiring for them to be saved, you think it's just and right that they go the rest of their life without hearing God's message. And just by way of analogy, this book points us to the gospel. That God is the creator. He's the judge. He holds the righteous standard. And yet he saves sinners by his grace. That's the progression of this book and that's what we've experienced in Christ. And my encouragement to you is if you haven't responded to Christ by realizing that, that God created you, he made you, that, that he holds the standard of righteousness, and that he can forgive you and will if, you've, if you'll repent from your sin by his grace through what his son has accomplished on the cross, you too can experience this great salvation that God gives. And so my encouragement is that you would respond to that today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you this morning and we see this, this picture of, of sovereignty and of grace. And we see a man's heart not match yours. We see the selfishness of man's heart. We see the, the, the desire of man that puts itself above you. And Lord, we see who you are. And Lord, so often we, we can relate to Jonah. We want our way. We're embittered, we're proud, we're blind, we're selfish. We wanna redefine you, we refuse you. We run from you. We don't have reverence for you. We misrepresent you. And Lord, we pray that you'd forgive us for that. Lord, help us this week as we go out from here to know your character rightly, that you are the judge. You do have a righteous standard 
that you are opposed to evil and that you will judge sinners for all of eternity and that you are sovereign over everything and that you are merciful and you are gracious and you are slow to anger. Who can fathom your ways, Lord? You are perfect. Help us to have your heart. Help us to see our own fickle ways and to submit to you. Lord, I also pray that those of us in here who who have forgotten the forgiveness that we've received in Christ, who've forgotten the mercy and the grace that we've received by your gracious pursuit, your gracious salvation because of your gracious heart, let us remember again what you have done for us in the gospel, that we might go and show this great forgiveness to others. Your word says those who have been forgiven much love much. Let us be those people. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here today who has never realized that you are sovereign, you are creator, you are judge, you hold the standard of righteousness, and yet you, by your mercy and by your grace, bring salvation, that they would repent of their sins today and trust in you by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.